411 Live. Well, you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world. 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your girl. 411 Human trafficking. You've probably heard of that term, and you probably figured that's far removed from you. Well, actually, human trafficking is everywhere. You may have seen someone, say yesterday, maybe even today, who is a trafficked victim, but you didn't know it. You might say that it is hidden in plain sight. Thanks for joining us. I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. We are embarking on a multi-part project dealing with human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking, and also looking at the trauma that this causes people involved in it. We will be talking about this, different aspects of it, and our goal is to bring awareness and really get the conversation going. And that's where you come in. We want you to comment. We want you to ask questions. We want you to make suggestions. So continue to do that throughout this podcast. Today's topic, we will be dealing with sex trafficking and its impact on the family. This is a big one. And we have two fantastic people joining me now. Dr. Debbie Lassiter, who is the executive director and co-founder of Convergence Resource Center, and Lisa McCormick, who comes to us all the way from Toma, Wisconsin. So thank you for joining us, and thank you for traveling here. And she is the mother of a sex-trafficked victim. And you're also a huge advocate for the awareness of human trafficking, correct? Yeah. We have a lot to talk about. But let's first, let's go over some terms, because... I find myself going back and forth using the term human trafficking and sex trafficking, and people may be going, well, what's the difference? But sex trafficking is a form of human trafficking. Is that a That's way correct. of yeah. So ahead, sex trafficking and labor trafficking are the two umbrella forms of human trafficking. Human trafficking involves the buying and selling of people to make them do what you want them to do using fraud, force, or coercion. So it can either be the sex trade or the labor trade, and then there are a bunch of little things that fall under those two umbrellas. Right. Another distinction we should make right away, and that being prostitution and sex trafficking. Explain that. So a lot of people disagree on this, um, but we really hold to that prostitution can be done of a person's own free will. If you decide that you want to make your living that way and there are no extenuating circumstances, there are people who fight for the right to be sex workers. And they would be very upset if you tried to stop them from doing that. Human trafficking or sex trafficking involves fraud, force, or coercion. Unless the person is under the age of 18 years old, then neither one of those have to be proven. If it's happening, it's automatically human trafficking. All right. That's good. Now, the two of you have come together. And you have developed a program to help families of the trafficked person. When I heard this, my first thought was, I haven't heard of this before. Because there are lots of programs out there for the victims and the survivors of sex trafficking. But I haven't heard anything to come alongside the family member or the loved one. So is that the reason why you guys decided to do this? Well, Go ahead, Lisa. I was just going to say that as a parent, when I went through all this with my son, there was nowhere to go. 
There were no resources out there. There were no organizations or anyone who could even help me and tell me what trafficking was and what my son had been through. So I really navigated that alone. And so I really made it my goal after my son's death that I was going to help other parents. And if that meant we had to create something, that's what we're going to do. Okay. So tell me a little bit about how this works. So for us, we're a victim oriented organization. So all of our services come out of a need that we've seen with the people we're working with. So for us, we started hearing stories from the ladies that they had told their families what happened to them and the families didn't respond. They just stared at them. So what they didn't understand was that the families are now in shock and they don't know what to say to you. They don't know what to do. Unfortunately, some of them then said, well, I'm going back to my trafficker because at least he loves me. He hugged me. He kissed me. They didn't do anything. Or we heard stories from husbands, from boyfriends saying, I don't know how to help her. I don't know what to do, you know. And so we saw all of this. So what we did was we developed this program and it has two facets to it. And I know we'll get into a lot of that probably later on, but we work directly with one family at a time. So if you have and working with the adult members of the family, Now, when we say family, we're not just talking about blood relatives. We're talking about loved ones. Your best friend might be the person who needs to come and get the help to know how to work with you. Okay, and so what we do is we have a program that helps them understand what it is, what happened to you, and what psychologically is going on so that they don't make the mistakes to re-victimize by not even knowing they've done it. Excellent. Okay. We're going to get into the Mm -hmm. program more a little bit later. But the other thing that impressed me about this is the two of you coming together. I think it's a good mix. I mean, you've been working with survivors of sex trafficking forever. I had a story to tell. Some may know that I was a reporter anchor for Fox 6 News for 21 years. But maybe 10 years ago, I guess it's been, I entered into a conversation with Debbie, and we talked about sex trafficking. And I went to one of the seminars, Epidemic in the Game. Mm -hmm. I was amazed. It was so eye-opening, and I ended up doing several reports Mm -hmm. dealing with sex trafficking, and that helped. You gave me the awareness so I could give the awareness to other people because, as we say, it's hidden in plain sight. Yes, it is. The other thing, so there's her expertise and everything, but, man, you bring that knowledge. So families who come to you, they can look at you and go, She feels my pain. Mm -hmm. She's been where I've been. Absolutely. Lisa, if you would, kind of tell me about this road that you traveled with Jeffrey, your son. Yeah, thank you. You know, being from rural Wisconsin, we really were not aware of what trafficking was. And if it was, it was something, you know, in a much bigger city than, you know, small town America, you know. But my son, at the age of 11, started doing drugs and got involved in that at school and continued on up until his freshman year of high school. He'd been a chronic runaway. So we'd been struggling with that for several years. And then in January of 2016, he had been gone for about six weeks. And he'd called me and asked me to come pick him up. He was down in Madison. And um, we'd been through enough with his drug use and runaways that we knew not to just go pick him up. And so we set up an operation with the police to pick him up for us. And when the police officer picked him up, my son informed him that he had been with these men and that they had forced him to have sex with multiple women and had beat him up when he didn't do what was asked. He'd been kept in a drugged up stupor the entire time, so thought he was only missing for about two weeks when it was six weeks. And 
so once we looked into the situation a little bit more, found out that these men were sexual predators. They were known by the police that they were doing this. And we found out that my son, you know, pretty much was kept so drugged up during that time and forced to have sex. He had burn marks all up and down his arms. And so during that six weeks time, you know, we brought my son out of that situation thinking that things would, you know, we'll just get back on the regular track and Mm -hmm. get back into the help that he was getting. He was involved with the juvenile detention center program, you know, up in our community. And so when he was brought to jail in Madison, he went to the juvenile detention center. And while he was there, he's now age 17. And that's considered an adult in Wisconsin. And so his traffickers had access to him while he was in jail on the phone, visiting him. It took us about three days to kind of figure out who these men were, where we were able to stop all communication. We were able to transfer my son back up to La Crosse. And when we transferred my son up here, the men continued to have access to my son, writing letters, calling the jail, doing whatever they could to try to get access to him. During that time, they also started stalking our family. They were on social media, on Facebook, friend requesting, talking to us, trying to get us to help them out. They wanted to post bail for Jeffrey, although that wasn't needed. They tried to get convince Jeffrey to be emancipated, which is illegal in the state of Wisconsin. You know, they were just doing all those tactics and grooming tactics to get Jeffrey to do what they wanted him to do right. and pull him away from the family. And so, uh, you know, we didn't understand what trafficking was back then and didn't even the jail personnel and that just didn't understand what emotionally he'd been through. And so that evening that my son was brought back there, um, he attempted suicide and we brought him to the hospital and tried to just assess, get him more help. And my son couldn't handle it. Things didn't move very quickly. And so my son jumped the fence and took off and ran away again. This time he ran straight back to the trafficker's home. And I like to kind of compare this to When my son was in middle school, he really struggled to fit in and try to find the right group of friends. The only friends he could really connect with were those friends that were making the poor choices and doing Mm. the bad things in school. And so it's kind of that's how my son felt about these traffickers. These were the people that cared about him. You know, even though he knew his family loved him, he knew that these people would take care of him and support him. And that connection. Right, right. And they had convinced him that that's what was happening. And so my son went down there and... Fortunately, the police found him. He was sitting on the porch of the home with a young girl. The two men were inside the home. When the police approached the home, my son jumped off the porch, ran down the alley. And when the police officer caught him, he unfortunately assaulted an officer. Now being an adult at 17, he went to adult jail Mm. for the next few months. During that three months that my son was in jail, again, the traffickers continued to have access to him. There was nothing I could do to stop the access they had. But in June of 2016, my son got out of jail and was home with us for about nine days. We thought things were back to normal. You know, things were looking great. And then one day he just disappeared again. That was the last time my daughter saw him alive. Mm. Over the next few months, he'd been running continuously, always down to Iowa. Really, at the time, couldn't understand the draw of Iowa. And then, But what we found out later is that it was his channel. He was running from Madison to Sioux City, Iowa. And that's where they were trafficking up and down, selling him on Craigslist, He was dancing in clubs, trying to find people outside of clubs, whatever he could do during that time that he was there. But I really didn't find out how much my son was being trafficked until after his death. He passed away on September 30th, 2016 of a heroin fentanyl drug overdose. I believe very strongly that the traffickers paid for the hotel and paid for the drugs that you know, that he eventually died from. But unfortunately, we have no proof of that. So those men are still out there. 
But what we found out, though, is as I was planning my son's funeral, somebody brought an envelope of photos to the funeral home, and it said, these are photos of your son from the last four months of his life. And inside the envelope were photos of my son with his traffickers. And I know what they look like because they stalked our family, and they, you know, we saw photos of them, so we knew what they looked like. And the funeral home said, those photos are so graphic, don't show them to your mom. My daughters looked at them and agreed that I should not look at those photos. And I really didn't look at them until about three months after my son's death and realized what I was looking at. So I have to stop you right now because this is this is atrocious. They brought pictures to the funeral home to add to your pain. It it gets worse. <laughs> um, they actually um, came to my son's funeral. The traffickers came to the visitation service. The gentleman that I kind of call the pimp, he's the top guy. He came in with a young woman on his arm who was just crying immensely and walked right in and, and shook my hand. And I knew instantly who he was. And um, he told us that he was Jeffrey's friend from Madison. And I knew instantly that he was the man. I asked him to be removed and he graciously left. And I thought that was over with. And then the next day when we had the actual funeral service in the cemetery, it was just about over. I was really kind of in a fog that whole morning. And at the service, my daughter kind of elbowed me and she says, Mom, look to your right. And over to the right is a man, kind of call him the middle in my terminology, but he's kind of the one of the workers. And he had this young man on his arm just tight and the boy was crying quite a lot. And my gut just told me that he was telling this boy, this is going to be you if you don't do what we say. Wow. Wow. I'm going to get you to stop right there. This is riveting. And this is a tough time. Just take a break. But we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to continue this conversation. The 411 Live, your link to information. And now here's your food for thought. When he said I could have everything I've ever wanted, I didn't expect it to slip through my fingers in a split second. I started out as a girl living a life of happiness with someone I believed I could trust. Then he twisted what I saw into a world of darkness. He took away my innocence, broke me down until I was no longer a human being, sent me into the streets to find date after date, bed after bed, so I could earn the cold hard cash he couldn't wait to spend. People think I'm a lost cause, someone just looking for a good time, when in reality, I'm being trafficked, and they don't know the signs. This is only one example of sex trafficking. Maybe other victims can escape if everyone learns the signs before it's too late. For more information, visit the411live.org. What do you think of when you hear intercourse for money? What do you think of when you hear expectation of your body? What pops in your mind when you hear young boys and girls being sold for sex? Do you think of sex trafficking? You should. What movie do you see when you think of someone being kidnapped to become a product? Oh, come on now. We all know what we think of. It's that film and that father who had to go all the way overseas to rescue his daughter. But wait, that's not just happening overseas. Try here, the United States of America. Try here, the state of Wisconsin. Try here, the city of Milwaukee. Unknown to many, the Harvard School of Pimps in their holy training ground. Young girls and boys are being solicited at an average age of 13 years old. Didn't know that, did you? Research and learn the signs of sex trafficking. Because you just might not know when your child's newest lover is their soon-to-be pimp. For more information, visit the411live.org. Now, Lisa, when we left, we were at the cemetery, and the trafficker was there. And you said there was a young man on his arm bawling. What do you think that was about? You know, my gut told me that 
he was telling this boy that this is going to be you if you don't do what we say. And and my gut just knew that this young boy was being trafficked, just like my son was. I knew right then and there that they were here. But it just doesn't even end there. We were looking out at the sea of hundreds and hundreds of people that were at the cemetery. And my daughter elbows me again, and she says, there's the other one. And this one we kind of call the bottom, and, and he's the one that's out there who is my son's friend. He was always the one trying to help my son call home, the one that was trying to help my son get a job and and help him out a lot. And he was out in the sea of people, and he was staring at us. And I swear to you, he never blinked. He just stared directly at us. And that's really when I fell apart. I did the whole ugly mom cry right. kind of thing. And I refused to leave. And I was crying so hard that nobody could understand me. And my, I think my family felt that I was afraid to leave him in the ground, that they were going to bury him, and I didn't want to leave my son there. But it, the really the thing that was making me so upset is I was never, ever going to let these men be near my son again. And there was no way that I was going to leave that cemetery with those men still having access to my son. And so when I finally could speak coherently, I told the funeral directors what was going on in my family. And they basically created a perimeter standing there with their arms, you know, on their hips and and protecting us and giving us a clear path to leave. And the funeral directors told us that they just basically told everyone to leave. They weren't welcome at the luncheon. You you needed to go home and and the family did not want you here. And so they made sure that was completely clear before they buried my son. There There are so many elements to that story. But one thing that surprises me, you know, I get it with a sex trafficker threatening and forcing and beating their victim. But here, now the victim... Jeffrey has died, and they're still doing this to the family, victimizing the family. I don't understand. Because the trafficker sets sets himself up as pimp God, which means that he wants his victims to believe that, or she, to believe that they can do anything. So possibly when they knew what had happened, they told them, we have the power to do this. We can make this happen to you if you don't do what we tell you to do. It's all psychological manipulation. And they would have said things like, we'll make your family go through this. Mm. We'll make your family feel this. So just as Lisa mentioned about telling them similar things like, this is going to happen to you. I can make this happen to you even if I'm not in the same state as you. If you run away, I can make this happen from where I am. So they want them to believe they have these godlike powers that they don't have. Oh, my goodness. So, Lisa, what gave you the strength? After all that you've been through, to say, okay, I'm going to not only make my story public, but I'm going to go here, 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 everywhere I can to help somebody else through my pain. I get asked that a lot. You know, where do you get your strength from? And and I have a very strong faith. I believe strongly that um, God has led me to where I need to be to do this. But, you know, truly, when Jeffrey was alive, we... Both of us said, we're going to write a book about this one day. You know, he he had written four books while he was in jail. He had, had written his autobiography. You know, he had titles done. He had artwork done. He'd even called a publisher before he died. He was ready to do this. And so we always knew that we would share our story someday. He had really hoped that he would be able to walk onto his high school graduation and be able to tell his classmates that I'm a recovering addict and and I'm here to share my story with you. And unfortunately, he passed away his senior year of high school. But I just knew that this is what 
the plan was, that we needed to do this. And I think that moment at that funeral, when those men were there, I knew that no way was I ever going to let another family go through what I went through. I navigated that alone, and I just did not want another family to ever have to do that. And if me going out speaking and talking and sharing our story can help one person and help another family so they don't feel alone, that's what I'm here for. As you're hearing Lisa's story, if you have comments, questions, please jot them down, send them to us, because we really want to hear what you have to say as well, because I'm sure that you're having some of the same reactions that I'm having. So we would love to hear your comments and see those comments. So send them our way. So with all of this, as you go from place to place telling your story, and Debbie, you do this too, but are you finding that people are really, I'll say naive, because the the mindset is, this could never happen to my child, my daughter, my son. I think one of the things that's really remarkable also about Lisa's story is that many times we forget that a trafficking victim can be male. Yes. And we forget that they can be young men. And when we think about them being young men, we automatically think about them sleeping with men. But they were forcing him to sleep, sleep with, with women. women. Yes. You know, and so we, that, that helps us broaden the scope of that trafficking can happen to anybody. And we need to take the blinders off a little bit. But I think naive is one word, but the, another word is just completely unaware. Mm-hmm. We live in bubbles. And if it's not in my bubble that I can see, it really isn't real. Right. And so this really bursts those bubbles for you to help you realize that it's happening everywhere. And it's interesting that you you say that because I was thinking, as she was telling her story, I was thinking, boy, this shatters a lot of things because, okay, we have a white boy and he is being sold to women in rural Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. It's not in Milwaukee. You know, so it just busts a lot of the myths or the the thinking that we have. Is it hard to get people to see that this is happening maybe in your neighborhood, maybe down your street? Is it hard to convince people of this? I think when I go out and speak... um it's kind of like deer in the headlights. You know, a lot of the people, you think you're doing good work and you're out there talking and sharing it. And then you talk to a group and they're so clueless. They just don't understand um, or unaware, like you said. And and so that just means we've got that much more work to do, that we've got to get out there and talk and share our story with more people. But yes, we are definitely, you know, we. I feel like I'm so different and unique, you know, that it how it affected the family. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen in every situation. The way my son was, you know, got into the ring and, and, and got doing all of that is very unique. And so when I first started speaking with others, I actually kind of felt like we were confusing our audiences because my story was so different than theirs. And the other victims and survivors started telling me that that's how unique and different this is. You know, I only knew my story. But now that I've been working with all these other people and hearing these other stories, I realize it is so unique and different. And that's why it's hidden. That's why we can't just arrest them all and and get them into jail, because it's so unique and different. And um, it really takes us educating everyone to understand that it's going to take all of us in order to stop the demand as well as stop the traffickers from doing what they're doing. The other thing, talking to your story, were you about to say something? I, I did want to ask you a question. You know, we're hearing a lot of how it affected you, but Jeffrey had siblings. And could you just talk a little bit about how it affected the more extended part of the family? Yeah, definitely. I have um, two other daughters, um, and they are affected very much. So oldest, 
used to be a very outgoing, bubbly, very, very adventurous person. And she really has come become quite an introvert. She doesn't like public attention. This is a girl who's always done choirs and, and show choir and theater and that kind of thing. And now suddenly she wants no attention on her at all. She doesn't like what is being brought upon her due to her brother. And then my middle daughter is suffers quite a bit of anxiety. When those traffickers were coming after our family and stalking them on social media. Um, We started hearing stories from police and other people that, you know, they come to your communities, they research and look at your community because they're looking for the most vulnerable person. And so they're going to come in and look at our community and our family and find out what can they do to pull Jeffrey further away from their family. And so she was petrified that they were going to come to her home. And if somebody parks on our street to take their lunch break or to answer their phone, she's on the phone calling the police because there's somebody outside her home. I mean, she's extremely anxious and nervous. And it's taken quite a toll on the two of them. They're gradually working their way out of that. But yeah, it's definitely taken a huge toll on our entire family. It really trickles down. It just it's just not the victim. But there's so many victims. Yes, because in a lot of cases, the children are aware of what's going on. I mean, younger children. I'm talking about uh, tender age children. And no one's, no one's helping them with it. You know, so we, we need to make sure that we remember them as well. That's why your program is so on target, so needed, and so unique in this community. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking that it's going to expand tremendously as people listen in and want to get more about it. Now, this episode, we've run out of time. They're going to stay with me for part two, and we're going to have a separate episode because we have a lot of things to talk about. We still want to delve into the program and how it can affect families and the impact that sex trafficking is having on families. We want to talk a little bit more about that and some of the warning signs and, uh, man, there's just a lot to discuss. So we are going to end this episode. I want to thank you both for being here. Again, they're going to stick around, so there will be a part two, so you need to tune in for that. Now, we will put more information on what we've talked about on our website, that being www.the411live.org. You can also tune in to Facebook. You will find us there. Go to our YouTube channel, of course, and check us out on Twitter and also IGTV. We have all of those sources, so you go there. Of course, we are a nonprofit organization, so when you go to our website, if you'd like to donate, we would greatly appreciate that. We hope that that you enjoyed our podcast and we hope that you will stick around for much more especially part two of this one so until then i'm beverly taylor and this is the 411 live real people real talk